This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number nine. If the owners aren't satisfied with the threshold that we get, why would you sell? You're only going to sell, pay the agent, and then you're going to pay some stamp duty to get into something else. So we're actually just testing the market for the owners. That's annoying for investors like me though. You know that, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> we want to buy the property. A little bit more annoying for the agents too, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> Hey, how's everyone doing? We have an absolutely killer show lined up for you today with some really, really great boots on the ground knowledge, plus some tricks of the trade from our resident 40-year veteran. And we are also going to be publishing the show on YouTube in the coming weeks. So watch out for that. Now, in today's show... Adam Lisi, our Hunter Region area expert from Commercial Collective, returns to the show to give us an in-depth look at the endless opportunity that Maitland City holds for investors and developers. He shares the assets in demand, cap rates and rates per square metre, plus the major development projects that are going to have a huge effect on the area. Putting together and submitting an offer on a commercial property can be a daunting task. Figuring out what terms and due diligence period you should use, and on top of the many different ways a property can be presented for sale, it's no wonder people shy away from investing in commercial property. That's all about to change. James Dawson demystifies the art of submitting an offer on a commercial property. He explains the pros and cons of all the different ways a property can be presented and sold, plus the tricks of the trade you need to be using in your next deal. If you want to step into the commercial world, this is a must listen. At Developer Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au. Returning today is our Hunter Region Area Expert from Commercial Collective, Adam Lisi. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Andrew. How are you? I'm fantastic, buddy. How's business going? Are things picking up? Yes, mate. Well, uh, compared to our when we had our conversation a couple of months ago, right at this point in time, it's as if COVID wasn't even here. It's really unique. So particularly the commercial leasing is firing. Inquiry levels on assets have picked up. I guess those got a result in outcomes, but in, certainly in terms of the phone ringing and people picking up the phone and trying to get on with life, it's been very promising and it's a really nice feeling from where we sit. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I can just tell that 
Newcastle has picked up from the amount of alerts I get from commercialrealestate.com.au now for things being leased and things being put on sale. So it's it's really, really good. Yeah, well, mate, let's hope that all that, um, from a sale point of view, again, the exchanges will tell us the story, mate, but that's starting to happen day in, day out now, which is, is, is as I said, which is really refreshing. Yeah, it's excellent. All right, mate. Well, today's market review is in another beautiful part of the world, which I plan to visit very soon, and that's Maitland in New South Wales. Okay, first off, where is Maitland? So Maitland is located 20 minutes, 25 minutes northwest of Newcastle. So uh, inland, it sits on the Hunter River, which is one of the major river circulars that run through or down through the region. But in terms of its proximity to I guess, uh, working, say, employment, it sits between Newcastle and Singleton slash Musselbrook, which, as we know, is more that mining region, the winery region. So it's actually really centrally located from an access point of view. Or Certainly, if you had a partner that was working in a professional industry in Newcastle and you were within the coal mines or a a coal-related industry, you'd certainly uh, reside in Maitland. That's probably the best way to explain it. Yeah, it's a great area. So what's actually happening in that marketplace, mate? Well, interestingly, some years back, and I'm going back a decade now, is that the government recognised that it was an extremely good growth area. Again, most likely because it serviced the coal fields and uh, I guess what what you would say is the, the professional versus working class and tourism. But what happened some years back is that the government identified that they earmarked it as one of the growth regions. And, and by that, I mean, they approved a lot of subdivisions and things for expansion. So, you know, there was a lot of green stamps being put on development applications and things a decade ago, and that's all coming to fruition. And and in fact, it's continuing. There's land subdivisions that keep popping up as the mini city grows. Yeah, I have actually noticed that Lochinvar and Farley, yep. that, that's uh, the urban release areas in the area which are pretty hot right now. Yeah, well, I guess feeding off that, we look at the proposed Black Hill project, the Moot Industrial Subdivision at the end of the freeway, is that's going to be very substantial and, again, just probably in some respects compete against the likes of Western Sydney and those areas in terms of being a big logistical hub and off the back of that will bring employment and things. So, again... It's just a continuation of approvals, expansion that's probably due because it's affordable and well positioned in terms of logistics. What area was that? Beresfield Thornton. Oh, Beresfield Thornton, yes. So Thornton is quite an interesting area as well. I've been having a look at Thornton. That seems like it's got a few newer structures. Has that been recently released? Yeah, correct. So again, if we look at the last decade or even up to 15 years, there's been some substantial releases that just keep continuing. And that's, as you see it, that's northeast of Maitland City Centre itself. And it's just, it's nice undulating land that has otherwise been redeveloped and in the process of being redeveloped. So there's a couple of subdivisions out there that have got shopping centres and things in them now. So, you know, they're certainly creating their own mini townships, if you like, just on the outskirts of Maitland. Yeah, that's on the New England Highway, isn't it? Correct. Yep. And then the other big industrial area in the area is Rutherford. That seems to be a bit of an older area. Yeah, so when you look at Rutherford, that is more of uh, a retail area. There's certainly industrial pockets. There's not heavy industrial through Rutherford. I would call it more of a light industrial, uh, but you've got the Harvey Norman complex there that, you know, every retailer or the major nationals are all represented down through Rutherford. And 
that again too, when we look back at when they were established, call it 10 years ago, that was part of the expansion model is those big retailers come to town because of the growth that was mooted from a residential point of view. So that's all been taken up and they trade well and it's well known and people come from far and wide to go shopping in that precinct. Yeah, you can know you're looking at a property in Rutherford by the roofs there. They've got an interesting way they did the roofs back then. Is there any reason for that? Mate, I can't answer that one. I'll have to have a look. You've been treat. You've been you know, the, the crocodile teeth me. roof, everything's like it's a big, you know. <laughs> you haven't noticed? That was the I haven't, mate. No, nah, maybe I'm just one-dimensional looking at commercial and industrial. So um, I need to look up from time to time. It's the only area that I've noticed that has like consistently that type of like crocodile teeth roof. That's just a term I probably just made up off my head, but that's the only way I could think of describing it. Um, yeah, fair enough. All right, mate. Well, so as a business, I guess you've already described why you would set up there, but like if you're trying to get to Sydney and Newcastle, it's probably not the best area to go to, is it? Oh, no, it's quite different to that. It's because oh, okay. the way that where the freeway ends, literally, in some respects, it's just as easy to get into Maitland and maybe easier than what it is to get into Newcastle. So the freeway literally stops or the extension from Sydney to where it meets the Hunter Expressway is a major junction that is literally five minutes into the Maitland CBD. So it's, it's easily accessible. And again, it's been well thought out. Okay, I guess I'm just looking at the map because I can see Sydney's in one point, Newcastle is in the other point, and Maitland is kind of going in towards the map. That's probably where I'm getting mixed up. Yeah, no, look, in terms of getting access, you know, particularly if you're on road, it's simple and just as easy. Okay, so what are the assets in demand in the area? Certainly industrial. Again, talking about the type of township and things that it is, retail is very, very strong around the Maitland, East Maitland Precinct, which is where Stockland have just expanded the major shopping centre. So it is a first class retail precinct that, you know, if I was going to liken it to something, I would liken it to Bondi Westfield or something of the like in terms of what it is and what it offers. But a brand new facility, there's about 75,000 metres of GFA in that building and it's, it's basically full. So that is a major draw card. Retail is very strong around there. But the drivers still, and I guess from um, a private's point of view that you'd be looking for, is the the steady growth of industrial through that Maitland and Hunter Regional area. What kind of cap rates are you seeing across each sector? They vary at the moment in commercial. So I would suggest that a yield differentiator between Newcastle and Maitland is about 1% to 1.5% typically. So I would call commercial in Maitland circa seven and a half to eight and a half percent industrial eight to nine percent so that would be my tip on yields typically you'll find an asset that's more than two to three million dollars those yields might tickle out again for maybe half a percent for something in the order of four to five million dollars in maitland you're probably looking at that you know early nine percent eight and a half to nine percent and is it kind of like Newcastle where, depending on what the property price is, the cap rate is dependent of that? Yes, it is, mate. It's, it's exactly the same as that. And what you'll find, and similar to Newcastle, is that there is out-of-area investors certainly coming into the region without question, but a lot of the properties are owned by a select group of people. So typically you'll find, Andrew, that if Mr. Owner owns one property here, he's probably got three or four or five. And 
Maitland has been very generous to the people that have stuck with it. So it's like Newcastle. It just has a steady growth. There's been a lot of regentrification in the city itself, which has helped retailers and helped give confidence to people to come into the area. And I liken that to Newcastle is that we don't tend to fall off the cliff when a market starts to head in the wrong direction. It just the line starts to just level out and it settles down for a period of time until things change again. So it's actually quite safe in terms oh, of the great. investment place. Excellent, mate. So can you just explain that bracketing the way you explained it to me before, just in case the people haven't listened to the last time we spoke? Yeah, so typically there's you know a lot more investors in that range of $1 to $2 million range. So if we're taking an asset to the market that's up to $2 million worth, there's a lot of buyers in the pool that uh, can afford that type of money, particularly if they're looking at a commercial or industrial asset. That's where the bulk of the buyer pool is. And so that puts pressure on that sector. And typically you'll get a bit tighter yield because of the competition in that range. And then when you sort of head from the two to three million up to about 10 million, we call those investors high net wealth, you know, people that have owned their own businesses and been successful. They'll typically, Andrew, look for a bit better return because I guess when you've worked hard for your money, you don't want to lose it and you don't want to give it away. You want to demand a fairly significant or a, or a strong return. So that buyer pool, those investors are typically a lot tougher. And when I say that, uh, they demand a bit better yield. Now, it's just the makeup of the buyers that are in that range. And when you're talking 10 million plus, you know, we start to step into what we would call capital markets for this region. So certainly not not in the context of a capital market for Sydney or Brisbane or the capital cities, but but for us, the yields start to trim up again a little bit because those funds are now around and in the region looking for assets to purchase. So again, a little bit more pressure, a few more buyers in that 10 mil plus world. All right, great. Thanks for explaining that again. I'd imagine that being that Maitland is a regional area, the vacancy rate can be quite high, can't it? So where would you say it's sitting at the moment? Yeah, look, that's a tough one, mate. And I've just been trying to establish that for us is that it doesn't get measured in Maitland. But if I was to have a suggestion, I would say it's in the order of 15%, maybe to 18%. And I'll say that that's an uneducated position because I there's nothing to measure it from in that area, but it's probably more of just a visual assumption is how I'd, I'd suggest I've come up with that. And again, comparing it to Newcastle and retail and commercial. So there's no measurement tool, unfortunately, for that area. So that's purely just a, a personal opinion. Yeah, well, your boots on the ground. So, I mean, your opinion has a lot more weight to it than someone else's opinion yep. like mine. Say I was investing in a property in Maitland and it was vacant and I wanted you to manage it for me. How long would you tell me it would take to lease up the space in each sector? Yeah, so hard to say when you break up the sectors again. But again, just my opinion would be is that with retail, you've got to have good foot traffic. The fundamentals of buying a retail asset within, let's say, a golden triangle if you're buying something vacant, my tip would be is pay a little bit more to get something that is right in the inner sanctum within the circle. Call it the dress circle if you like. So I would say that you want to give yourself about 12 months and possibly even up to 18 months. And you might say, well, why would you do that? But you can buy a vacant property, spend a couple of dollars on it. And if you can justify sitting on it, that's where you're going to get the best returns going forward. 
Maitland has always been one of those places where if you can buy something and refurbish it, and that's happened over time, you know, a lot of the buildings have been refurbished now. That was really where the opportunity was, was to buy vacant, improve the buildings and then find a tenant. From a commercial perspective, I'd, I'd suggest 12 months as a let up time. So retail is sort of 12 to 18, commercial is 12. And again, mate, we always are on the side of, I guess, just they're on the side of conservative just to make sure that if we're putting someone into an asset, we don't want to be the people that say, oh, we'll get this thing leased up in three months and we're there in 12 because, mate, that can change people's lives pretty significantly. And the reality is, Andrew, is by the time you have a vacancy period, you spend some money on marketing, you pay agents fees, you can easily eat into your cash flow that would otherwise, you know, take 12 months, if that makes sense. So there's a bit to think about when you're doing that and giving advice around that. Yeah, definitely. I guess buying a vacant property and then, you know, refurbishing it and splitting it up is a bit more of an advanced strategy when you have probably yep. a bit more knowledge and experience behind you, yep. especially cash flow. I mean, I've seen results in those instances where you can get 10, 12, 14, 15% returns by doing that. Again, if you're sitting well from a cash flow position. Yeah, that's right. So, mate, the industrial sector, you said there's a bit of a demand there. What would be driving that force? Oh, I think it's just about stability. One of the things that we noticed during this COVID period is that things didn't really change up there from an industrial point of view. The mining sector kept moving, the building sector kept moving, and that location of Maitland and the surrounding area is that is what those core sectors are: is mining, mining related, uh, and building. So, what is driving it is the stability around the sector didn't even change. My view is, is it really didn't miss a beat. If you're looking at an industrial asset, what are the must-haves? Must-haves, um, good parking, a building. You know, I always try and look at a building that you get some depreciation out of because you get better depreciation out of an industrial building than what you do as a commercial. So first and foremost, that's one of the things that always appeals to me is the level of depreciation you can get out of an industrial building. You want to think about, and again, it comes back to price point, is accessibility. So when you look at logistics, particularly warehouses, you want to make sure that you can get B-doubles in and off-site because, you know, whilst you might have one sitting tenant that doesn't need that, you want to think about who is the next type of user that might come in. So you want to have access and egress to the site. A crane anywhere in in the order of a 10-tonne crane is also an advantage, thinking about whether the current tenant needs it or the next tenant needs it. And the advantage you have, mate, is a lot of the buildings are quite new anyway, Andrew. So over the last 20 years, you know, the whole area has been made up of new buildings that are being constructed. But yeah, so just in summary there, a crane is good to have on deck. Access and egress, so make sure you can get B-doubles in and out. Is there any depreciation left in the asset? Those types of things is what I'd be looking for. And I guess high clearance uh, roller doors would be also something to be looking for. Without question. Let's face it, when you're buying commercial industrial retail, you're buying it for a return. You're not doing it for the love of it. So the numbers need to always work on comparison to, say, residential, where it's a home that you're going to live and it's an emotional decision. When you're buying or you're acquiring in the commercial world, you need to make sure that the property can work as hard as it can for you from a a return point of view. So in that instance, buildings depreciate land appreciates you know the old golden rule now you can take advantage of a building depreciating because there's write-offs that come with that so let's look at an example whereby you buy a block of land for a million dollars and you spend a million dollars to build a building well 
your construction of that million that you've spent, and again, it varies for people, but you can claim in the order of two and a half to four percent depreciation on that million dollars that you've spent. So, in effect, what that means is is that that goes against or offsets some of the tax that you might otherwise pay. So it's a really important fundamental in investing is to understand your appreciation ability with an asset. Yeah, definitely. Is there much stock on hand of the type of property that you just described to me? Is it easy to find? Um, there is a few more coming online now. People are looking at this, I guess, with interest rates so low and you know, if we're talking yields in the order of 7 to 8%, give or take, then some owners are capitalising on that now. I would call it a, a B-plus to A-grade sort of opportunity when I'm suggesting that, to put it into context, like uh, a five-year lease to a, a national covenant. You know, those assets are a little bit hard to come by, but more of the secondary style of assets, there's certainly a few to choose from. There's always something to choose from in that Maitland region because, Again, if we're talking industrial, there's a lot there, but the vacancy rate is good. I mean, it's low for industrial. There's always an opportunity to you know, run the ruler over. There's no question about that. Yeah, I actually did notice that you have a few properties for sale in Thornton. Yep. At the moment, great. Are there any major development projects that are due for completion that could create an oversupply? Um, no, is the answer to that. I, I don't believe so. If we look at the next mooted project coming online in Beresfield, that'll be a stage project. Developers won't release everything at any one time. And, and there's a bit of pressure on in the industrial market at the moment because there's actually becoming a, a lack of quality land available, which developers and builders can build on and owner occupiers can construct on. So whilst over the last decade, there's been a lot of land come and go, it's really controlled well. And yeah, my view is, is I don't think we'll see an oversupply in any time going forward. Are there any sectors that are undersupplied right now? Not that I could put my finger on, no. Not okay. Yeah. Let's talk infrastructure. I know there's one big one that you're going to tell me, and that's the hospital. How's that going? Yeah, look, that's due for completion uh, early 2020. So yeah, that's a more or less a, a $470 million New South Wales government initiative That'll bring basically 350 new beds into the region, which is fairly substantial. And I guess from a, an access point of view, or actually if we hone in a little bit more into its location, it's not too far away from the Stockland Greenhills redevelopment. So you've got two major, major projects that are sort of near on neighbours to each other. So there's an example of uh, the infrastructure that is quite significant. And again, I guess providing even more weight around the area and the infrastructure that's coming in. And when infrastructure comes online, investment follows. So there's the confidence piece. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of jobs created with just that hospital alone, isn't there? Correct, mate. No question. Is there a big difference in the rate per square metre in office to industrial to retail? Yeah, and there's a real broad answer here. Okay. If we looked at industrial rates, improved rates... For a building that's vacant and you're buying, and let's say they're all five to 10 year old building, the rule of thumb is we'd be looking at, from a commercial point of view, we'd be suggesting uh, anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 a square metre to maybe even 2,000 a square metre improved. If it's quality with parking, has all the basic fundamentals of a commercial property. 
Retail is a little bit lower than that. I'd call it 10% lower than, than that range. And from an industrial point of view, you're probably more of that 1,000 a square metre, give or take. And a lot of those buildings from an industrial point of view now, Andrew, have a fairly substantial component of office as well. So sometimes when we're going in and pricing these, we're running an office improved rate, call it 1,500 a metre versus a, uh, a warehouse or a warehouse rate of call it 1,000 a metre. Okay, and what are the buying opportunities in the area, in your opinion, the best buying opportunity? Oh, I mean, I, I don't have a straight answer for that. Typically, the best deals that are done are the deals that might actually have a few hairs on them. You know, some of the best transactions that I've seen, Andrew, is something that looks a little bit hard and the purchaser has actually gone to the extent of doing a little bit more investigations and, and taking the hairs off an asset. And when I say taking your hairs off an asset, we might be talking something like, you know, oh, it's got a bit of contamination or it's got an asbestos roof or, you know, there's some grouting needed, mining issues. It's the person that doesn't just look at it at a high level and says, oh, well, that's too hard and I won't look at it. It's the guy that actually lifts the hood on the bonnet and digs a bit deeper that gets the best returns because everyone else walks away. And a lot of the time, these, well, not a lot of the time, most of the time, these things are solvable. So, and that would be my comment across any asset that you look at. You know, where's the opportunity? Is is the asset under rented? So, you know, if the rent should be 150 a square meter, is it at $100 a square meter? And has actually anyone looked at it and done a survey and broken that rent down? You know, because when the rent review comes or the market review comes, there might be another $50 a square meter uplift in the rent that could be achieved. It's those types of things, mate, just going back to the fundamentals. Yeah, that's always the case with property, isn't it? The more problems you can find and solve, the more money you can potentially make. Yep, yep. So those rates per square metre, can you go through the renting rates per square metre for each sector? Again, it's a little bit difficult because each of the smaller precincts or estates have varying rates. So broadly, I would say to you that it's anywhere from 250 to 350 a square metre gross from a retail and commercial point of view through the city. If you had something that was a little bit uh, smaller, you know, i.e. 100 square metres and under, you're probably going to get a higher rate, 350 to 400, maybe even 450 a square metre gross from a retail point of view. And then if we flick back over to industrial, those rates, mate, can be anywhere now from 180 a square metre to sort of 220, you know, talking quality industrial facility the old rule of thumb was anywhere from sort of 80 to 110, 120 a square metre for the older style facilities. But for the newer facilities, you know, they, they're, they're in that late 100 a square metre area. And that's purely just based on the economics. These buildings need to be built. And that's the return that the developers and the builders need to, to make it economical and stack up. Yeah, some good information there, um, even though it's probably a little bit broad and I'm probably putting you out on a bit of a limb there. But thanks for that. I appreciate it. It's okay. Are there any tenants that would be leaving the market, to your knowledge? Not at the moment. What's happening is there's more service providers coming into the market, hairdressers, beauty, health and fitness is starting to creep in as well. And again, if we look at the expansion of these estates that are coming online time and time again, is that they need these service providers. And typically, you just get waves of these inquiries, Andrew. They all seem to come at the same time and they disappear for a couple of years and then they come again. What's good is with Maitland at the moment is there's actually some new 
businesses looking to set up in the city and the CBD. So, yeah, that's refreshing because when you've got new businesses coming to town, that means more population. So, and it means confidence. The inquiries that you are getting, what sector would they be mostly for? Hard to say, mate, because we're across every sector known to man at the moment, <laughs> except residential, it's hard to pinpoint. But it's those mum and dad providers or uh, small businesses is where the inquiry is coming from. So again, looking off the back of what we've been through with COVID and these people, a bit of hospitality as well, which is you know surprising, but people looking at things and saying, okay, well, whilst we've been through what we've been through, where is the opportunity? And people are going to want to get out of the house again. So hospitality is probably a great thing even though that contradicts my comments a few months back when we were chatting. I guess it's really difficult to say. I don't know what the drivers are. And again, when I liken it to Newcastle and the amount of commercial office inquiry we've got, I can't put my finger on it why it's as strong as what it is. But we're not getting in the road of that. We're just, you know, executing it. Yeah, well, it's definitely an area that has a lot of things going on development-wise. And the population, it's not insignificant. It's like 80,000 or something, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's mooted to be 90,000 in 2023. And again, it's just this steady influx, about 2% per annum influx of new people. And, and, and what that does, mate, is that means, that, you know, there's sustainable development there. You know, the guys doing the subdivisions from a residential and industrial point of view, you've just got this continuation of steady growth year on year. And there's bankable projects because of the, uh, obviously, the, the increase in population. Are there any selling opportunities in the area? The answer is yes. And at the moment, when you look at interest rates and the fundamentals of the market, there's an appetite out there for people to invest. And again, I mentioned to you before about each township and city seems to have its ongoing investors that buy and sell continuing and have done for years. The opportunity to sell at the moment is quite strong is because of simply the interest rates where they are and possibly the fact that commercial property, industrial property uh, is the only thing that has fared well through the period that we've just been through. So it's a good sustainable sector to be within, again, for the reasons I mentioned before, particularly in Maitland, which is that industrial precinct style working class slash professional demographic. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I guess that kind of dovetails into my next question, which was which sector was the biggest winner and loser of COVID-19? But I guess you've already kind of answered it there with saying where industrial and commercial space really flew through unaffected or maybe commercial space might have a flow on effect with um, yep. space coming back. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm still waiting to see it. What has really surprised me is that, you know, there's a lot of, and, and I'll refer to Newcastle because it's probably an easier test. And then that flows through to Maitland anyway, let's say on comparison to the capital cities. We haven't seen any changes from a office requirement point of view or any decrease in office fundamentals off the back of COVID. So I guess when we look in Sydney, there's floor plates anywhere from 1,000 to 4,000 square metre floor plates. In Newcastle, we're only talking floor plates of sort of 1,000, 1,500 square metres. And when I say that, I talk about, or when I refer to that, the reason I do is because we talk about the density of people coming in and out of buildings and I guess the one in four square metre ratio, whereby how much density do we have or is required based on the populations that come in and out of town or in and out of these buildings. And, and at the moment, I guess, you know, businesses are running their assessments, but 
they're not seeing anything too detrimental because of the lack of otherwise high density population that, that the likes of Sydney and those capital cities deal with every day. I know that's a long answer, but it's a nil effect at the moment. Yeah, I guess you might see a little bit more of that happening in areas that are more of a higher expense per square metre area, where you yep. could really significantly cut down your cost as a business owner if you have your employees working from home. But I guess in Maitland and Newcastle, the expense is nowhere near Sydney or you know any of the capital cities. So it probably might the bottom line might not really make much of a difference there. Look, that's a really good observation. Is that I've actually just recently negotiated a deal in Sydney. I acted as a tenant rep and it was 900 a square metre with a full fit out versus 370, 383, 90 a square metre here in Newcastle. So you're less than, easily less than 50%. So that's, that's a really good observation. So mate, in 12 months, where do you see the cap rates for each sector? Do you think they'll push out or contract? I think they might just stay where they are for the time being is what my gut is telling me. You know, again, you said, where is the opportunity sectors? And I, I mentioned it, I was pretty strong on it before with our last interview was in that health sector. And I haven't mentioned health at all during this conversation. But, you know, again, the region, the highest employer is health within the region. So nothing has changed from that last conversation. I'm probably just tapping into what would be the next opportunity, particularly when we're talking Maitland. And I think that's that industrial world. So the answer is, is I don't think yields are going to change too much over the preceding 12 months unless the world changes itself and again it's because of that low interest rate position there's opportunity there now is my view that's if you can find something not everyone's selling just because off the back of no one's gotten scared and said well i'm going to sell now so there's not been a flurry of opportunity to come to the market yeah that's the beautiful thing about commercial property in general is if you've got a good tenant and you've bought well and you're getting a high yield, there's really no reason to sell because it's a great asset. Yep. There's a lot of conversations that we have sometimes whereby we take an asset to market and if the owners aren't satisfied with the threshold that we get, well, then why would you sell? You know, you're only going to sell, pay the agent, and then you're going to pay some stamp duty to get into something else. So there's odd occasions where we're actually just testing the market for the owners to see whether or not they can cash out and, and things like that. So that happens quite often. That's annoying for investors like me, though. You know that, right? Because <laughs> we want to buy the property. And it's a little bit more annoying the for the agents. Uh, uh, it's a little, uh, bit, sorry. little bit more annoying for the agents, too, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right, mate. Well, last question. Any bold predictions for Maitland in 2020? No, you'll just see steady growth, again, in that residential sector, which is great. They've got good schools. Obviously, the health sector is strong retail off the back of East Maitland. It's just a really good, steady market that you can't go wrong. It's I'm going to use the word boring, and I say that with all the respect, but the reality is, is that that is the style of market that it is. And, and the money that you get today is the money you'll get next week and the week after and the week after. Fantastic, mate. Where can the listeners go to find out more about your company and your services? Yes. So as you know, mate, we're a fairly new company, Commercial Collective in Newcastle. Check us out online, www.commercialcollective.com.au. And mate, we're always here and always learning like everybody. Thank you, Adam Lisi from Commercial Collective for today's market review. Thanks, Thanks, Adam. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cash flow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. 
it's not unusual to receive fifty to a hundred to even two hundred thousand dollars of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's commercial property cash flow blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. My next guest is the creator of the number one online commercial property course in Australia, James Dawson. How are you, James? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. No worries, buddy. So today we're going to continue the education for beginners and we are going to discuss making an offer to purchase a property. What are the different methods of sale you'll see out there in the marketplace? Well, essentially, the private treaty sale is probably the most common. That's just when you see a property just advertised for sale at a price. And then from there, you move to auctions, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with. And then one that's perhaps not so familiar to a lot of people is EOI or expressions of interest. And they're a little bit tricky. They're a little bit like a silent auction. So, of course, auctions always have a day that the auction's going to be on and you can buy that way or buy perhaps before auction. But with expressions of interest, they generally give you a closing date to basically lob in an offer on that property and then hopefully uh, be in the running. But what I find happens with those sales is that generally the date comes and goes and then they ring everyone up and try and get another couple of dollars out of or some more money out of each of the people that were interested. So it's a hard way to buy and auctions are a hard way to buy as well. With an auction, you don't get a a chance for due diligence, do you? No. So essentially, if you look at, say, someone like uh, Burgess Rawson, who are a big real estate company in Australia, do a lot of auctions, basically the time that you've got to do your due diligence is pretty much from the time you start looking at that property up until the auction date. So the auction campaign might be, you know, four weeks or sometimes even only 21 days. And that's all you've got to make sure that that property is right for you and do your full due diligence and also get your finance. Because on the day of auction, you will be signing generally an unconditional auction contract and paying a full 5 or 10% deposit and proceeding to settle within the next 30 days. Yeah, it's a bit risky, isn't it? I mean, you could be shelling out all that cash and then you've still actually got to win the auction as well. That's right. I mean, look, you know, people do buy at auctions. Um, I certainly in the early days bought houses at auctions, but it's really in a situation where you have to be absolutely ready to settle because given time it takes to get loans and things through that you don't want to be in a situation where you miss settlement and then suddenly you're in all sorts of bother with the contract underway. So that can be a little bit tricky. So are there any other cons with a normal sale, like a private treaty or the expression of interest that are notable? 
Well, definitely, actually, one of the, I guess, it's a little bit of a pro with expression of interest over and above an auction or as compared to an auction sale is that you can often have some conditions inserted into your offer. So if you're writing up an offer for a property that's expressions of interest, you may put in there that's subject to finance and subject to you know a further due diligence period. So it's sort of like a silent auction, but you can perhaps, depending on the person selling it, add some conditions. Now, with a normal sale, I guess, look, there's no real pros and cons, I guess, is that you can take your time a little bit. And that's why people generally like normal sales. And when I'm talking to any of my students, I will say, look, that's the easiest way to go. I mean, why not go the the path of least resistance, you know, go for a normal sale. I guess with each of these methods of sale, you're always up against competition. Anyone can jump in at any time, you know, particularly at an auction, I guess, though, you're going to be seeing that. That's one pro of an auction is that if you're there on the day bidding, you can see what other people are bidding. And it might obviously force you up in price, which is exactly what the vendors want. Whereas a normal private treaty sale, you really rely on the agent to say, hey, look, you know, there's been a higher offer come in. Sometimes they'll tell you what that is and other times they won't. There's another kind of out of the box way that just popped into my head. Have you ever tried to option a property? Uh, Yes, I have. I've had properties under option. And look, the old saying that someone, I think an old lawyer told me years ago that only fools give options, right? (laughs) So if you're selling a a property and you're prepared to give someone an option, now essentially, you know, I think when I did, I was looking at some property to buy in Byron and we paid the owner $10,000 as an option fee, which he gets to keep. And we basically had that property under our control for about 12 months. So the idea was for that buyer that he had plenty of time and he was probably getting a slightly above market price at the price that we'd set. But the advantage for us was that we had secured that property for 12 months and knew that he couldn't sell it to anyone else. So that was a big disadvantage for him too, if he wanted to sell it quicker. And we could actually have gone on and sold that option onto someone else. But I find that in the marketplace, it's quite hard to get options on property unless you're willing to perhaps pay over the odds for that property. Most people, as soon as they go to their lawyer, their lawyer sort of says, well, look, I don't think you should be giving an option on your property. So that's generally what happens. But it does suit some sellers and it would certainly suit buyers. I mean, if you could run around and and, and option up several properties, obviously it's going to cost you some money. But if you had a plan for that deal, it may be a great way to go. Yeah, it's quite interesting because you could potentially, like if you could find a property that has some really nice upsides that you can identify, you could option it and then initiate those upsides. And then by the time you bought it, you're buying a property that's valued at a whole lot more than you first optioned it at. That's right. And in fact, with the one that I did years ago, it was all about whether it was going to be a development site or not. And we needed the time to do that. And we did go ahead and buy that property, but essentially we didn't develop it. We just kept it as it was, but it was still worthwhile. So, yeah, that's certainly a a way of doing it. Otherwise, of course, uh, buying property subject to a development application or subject to getting a tenant. And that's something where it's a little bit like an option, meaning that the owner sort of has to wait for the agreed period of time while you get that tenant in place or get that approval in place. Yeah, I guess uh, an option agreement is probably a little bit more of an advanced strategy. So we'll get back on topic. 
when you're putting together an offer, if it's not an expression of interest, would you send a letter of intent to a private treaty? Look, generally, uh, the way I recommend and the way I normally put offers in is firstly over the phone with an agent and hardly ever do it direct with the vendor. But let's say you're just dealing with an agent like most people would. I would call them up and say, look, I'm going to submit an offer of X. And when I follow up with an email, I think it's actually not a bad idea to be slightly vague in the terms and conditions because... Once your lawyer gets hold of it, they're always going to want to add more. And so you don't want to say too much and then you're sort of stuck with it. So it may be an offer that may be something like, I'm going to offer $525,000 for this property subject to finance and subject to a 40-day due diligence period. That's it. And uh, I know some people put a lot more content in their offers and I just don't think it's necessary. It's sometimes all about price with sellers. So I think... It pays just to be a little bit vague, just to get across that you're willing to do that. You might add that you're happy to pay a 5% deposit within seven days, something like that. But the job's sort of done. The agent's going to get that across to the person selling the property. And then the next step, of course, is the lawyers preparing the contracts. And and that's when the uh, rubber really hits the road, of course, was when you sign a contract. Okay, so when you're signing that contract, that's when you'll firm up your terms. What terms would you usually include? This is where it's essential, of course, that before anyone signs any sort of contract that you have your lawyer look at it. Now, and it does vary state to state in Australia, but let's just say a Queensland contract, they're actually quite straightforward. Sometimes their due diligence clauses are a little bit lacking. So your lawyer might get the draft contract from the vendor's lawyer or from the agent, and he might say to you, look, I just want to add a few more things into the due diligence clause just so to make sure that we can get out at any time, you know, up to the 30 or 40 days, whatever it has been the agreement. And then it will also have the finance clause subject to building and pest, for example, building and pest inspections. And that's generally the three biggest things. And then, of course, during the due diligence clause, the way that my lawyers write them up is that you can virtually walk away from the deal during the due diligence period for any reason whatsoever, even just a simple change of mind. Yeah, it's a nice out, isn't it? So do you ever put in some terms that you're purposely putting in there, you know they're not going to get accepted and you use it as kind of a negotiation tactic or a concession? Yeah, so that's a great point because during the due diligence period with commercial property, you can often have a second bite of the cherry with the purchase price. So, for example, let's say you're a week into the due diligence and you've had that property inspected by a building inspector and he finds that the roof is you know, really quite bad and probably needs replacing. So you can go straight back and say, look, this deal is going to be off unless you replace the roof or deduct $20,000 or whatever it may be from the price. So you can actually sort of cover a lot of those things off just in that general due diligence clause rather than being sort of specific about various things. Some people try to put in a contract subject to valuation. So for example, if you're buying something at say $500,000 and the valuation came in at, at 480, I'm not sure that it's ever going to be guaranteed that the vendor is suddenly going to reduce his price to 480. He may do, but Generally speaking, if you've got a finance clause in there in any case and you get the valuation and it comes in lower, 
you can effectively go back to the person selling and saying, look, the valuation on the property is coming $20,000 lower than the purchase price. That's going to muck me up on this deal. I won't be able to finance it. So, look, I'm going to walk away or could you reduce the price by 20 grand? But what about basic terms, James, like the amount of days for your due diligence or even the whole contract of sale? Would you put in a few extra days, even though you know, like you might put in 30 days, but you know you could get it done in 20? Oh, absolutely. Look, the longer the better. And look, there's a little trick there. I must say it doesn't often work, but if you say, for example, 30 business days, that gives you a lot longer than 30 calendar days because you're only using the business days during the week. But often people pick up on that. And just another point that, yes, so going for the longer due diligence, particularly actually during a time like we're in at the moment, just after this COVID or during this COVID episode, you might need a little bit longer to get things organised. Now, Generally, what I find is, too, that once you enter into a contract and have a due diligence clause and you're in that due diligence period, 80% or 90% of the time, you could ask for extra time. So you wouldn't want to do it at the beginning of the DD period. But if you're getting towards the end of the DD period and some reports or building inspections hadn't come back, you potentially can ask for an extension of time. Now, I've seen some deals extend the due diligence out from 21 days to three months, simply because, you know, the vendor may not have been able to provide some information that was requested, or the finance is getting tricky. And it's really up to the vendor whether they allow that. They might say, well, I'm I'm a long way down the path with this buyer. If I start again with another buyer, potentially could take me a lot longer. So I may as well extend his due diligence and see if we can get this deal across the line back to when we're like kind of making an offer like you know at a price point do you have a strategy when putting in an offer like do you leave some wiggle room for a higher offer yeah that's a great point i think there's i guess two parts to that is that going quite hard with commercial property with regard to making you know what may seem like a very low offer The first thing is, you know, it's great to back that up so that the vendor and the agent can understand why you're making that low offer. And that may be based on some sales evidence and things like that that you've had from other properties. But I would always allow some wiggle room, as you say, to go up because when you're looking at deals, a lot of people get stuck on a number. So they'll say, I'm only going to pay $500,000 for that property and if you had to borrow an extra 20000 with the interest rates being so low, the cost is just, you know, so small that they're potentially missing out on a great deal just because they've been stubborn on a price. So, you know, whatever price you do go in at, I hate doing deals with people who say, look, that's my first and final offer because you think, wow, the vendor might have a figure in mind that he has to get. For example, it might be to settle up a partnership or something like that. And deals do fall apart just over $10,000 and can be silly from both sides of the table, but that's what happens. So you do need to be a little bit flexible and redo your numbers on the whole deal at a couple of different price points. And you might decide to go in at, at a medium offer, particularly if you call an agent, for example, and say, look, I'm about to make an offer of 500,000 and he might say, well, look, they knocked back 520, James, you know, yesterday morning, they're not going to take 500. You can still make that offer, but that gives you an indication. Sometimes you only find out what they've knocked back when you're about to make an offer. So it's it's one of those things that there's probably no set rules, but yeah, you definitely want to allow a bit of room to move up. 
And have you ever put in multiple offers at a time, say with like different terms and different prices? So you might have one that's all cash. You might have one that includes some partial vendor finance at a higher price, or you might just have like a normal private treaty. Have you ever done that, James? Yes, and I've actually had offers being made to me on that basis from someone who was super experienced, um, well-known Australian property guy who taught me that actually by making a, a three-tiered offer. It didn't involve vendor finance, but essentially there was three different price points. You know, one was settled in 30 days, one was part lease, then settle, and, and then there was one that was another price with something else. I think with the vendor finance side of things there, you would definitely probably have got to that before whether they're interested in that. So you could either leave that in or leave that out. But that is definitely a good option of saying, well, look, you know, I'm making one offer perhaps on the basis that the tenant signs a new lease with a longer term. And a second offer could be, yeah, I can settle in 30 days with a low due diligence period for for a lower price if you're comfortable with doing that. So often it's a good thing because it gives people an idea that you are thoughtful about the deal and you're a more professional investor because you've thought about these offers and it gives them some options to consider. So uh, it could be a good way to go. Yeah, that's a good strategy, isn't it? So once your offer is accepted, what percentage usually do you have to put down for a deposit? Generally speaking, I mean, I think really the law says you can even use a dollar as a deposit on a contract. But In the real world, I know most agents would be really cranking you up to pay the full 10% as soon as you sign the contract or on agreements on an offer, they'd be saying, okay, can you transfer 10% into my trust account? But in practicality, generally what happens in the last couple of deals I bought, it's like transfer $10,000 this afternoon and I've got to move some money around. When I get the contract, I'll pay up the balance of 5%. I always try to get my contracts to be made to be 5%. So generally, that's all you need to do to get the ball rolling. It's like a sign of good faith. Until the contract's actually signed, it's only an offer on the table. So paying a deposit doesn't really mean that much, but it does show that you're a serious buyer. And if the agent can go to the vendor and say, look, I've got a buyer here. He's prepared to pay a part deposit this afternoon. This is his offer. I think that would mostly make a lot of people sit up and think that this is a serious offer, so let's take it seriously. And that deposit, is that always refundable, James, if you want to walk away during the DD period? Yes, but always check. Now, it's funny, I'm just helping a a chap with a deal at the moment up in Marucci Door, and he's a, a Swedish guy. He hasn't bought in Australia yet, and he's buying now, and that was his first question. You know, just paid the 5% deposit, and I said... Yes, that is the case, but please check with your lawyer. And look, it's just one of those things, always check. And perhaps to cover yourself, just check with an email to your lawyer. So look, if I pull out of this deal during the DD process, will I get my deposit back? You know, just ask that question. I mean, of course, you may not get some legal fees back because the lawyer's already doing some work. But yeah, that's generally the situation. Is I've never heard of anything being different than that. But contracts can be tricky. And Let's say something went a day over and then you were trying to get your deposit back, there might be an argument. How long should you expect the wholesale process to take? Generally speaking, from the time someone makes an offer to signing a contract, I would say 
it's probably less than seven days. And so then you've got, say, an exchange of contract. Now, then your due diligence period starts. So let's say you've got due diligence and finance that uh, they've agreed to 30 days. You've got that full 30 days to do all that. And then often it's a couple of weeks or another 21 days or even 30 days after that to actually settle the deal. So it could be could be anywhere, say, from 40 to 60 days. For the whole process? Yeah, that's wow. right. And if things take longer, and look, I've seen deals that have taken three or four or five months to settle, and simply because, you know, there's been documents that perhaps the owner hasn't been able to provide or lost leases and stuff like that, all sorts of things that where the person buying the property is prepared to wait because they want to get the right documents and the vendor is obviously prepared to wait because he's lost the documents. So, <laughs> um, you know, it can take longer, but it's, it is all about just a tip there. You know, once you get into the due diligence period, it's essential that you as the buyer, if you're buying, to keep in touch uh, with them at all time, with your lawyer, and so they can transmit that to the other side's lawyer, you know, of everything that's happening. And so that if you get towards the end of the due diligence, you can say, hey, look, we need another week, something like that. You, you'd never want to do that in the last day of due diligence, suddenly say, oh, look, we need two weeks, we haven't done anything. You've got to be very businesslike in your manner to enable you to get the benefit of perhaps some extended time if you need it. How much should you put aside for professional fees for a sale? Look, it varies from deal to deal. So let's say use an example of a 500k sale, and, and I'm just helping with one at the moment. So in that sale, we've allowed about $3,000 for legals. Now, in that legals $3,000, it might only be $1,000 initially for the lawyer, but then there's all sorts of searches to do, you know, all the... Uh, body corporate searches that they'll order, other documents from various departments, things like that. So it may not come to a full $3,000. Generally, valuation, I would allow on that size deal, maybe $1,500 to $2,000. Building and pest inspection, I would allow, say, $1,000 to $1,500. If you're going to talk to a town planner or an architect, it might be say $500 for them to just do like a desk review if it was a whole building, not a strata building of what you may be able to do on that property. I also recommend allowing a little bit for travel if you've got to go somewhere. So in that situation there, what have you got? You've got about five, about seven, seven or eight thousand dollars on a 500k sale. That is potentially way higher than it may cost. But when you're doing your numbers, I think it's better to over over allow because they're sort of hard costs that you're going to have to pay for from cash generally so it's better to allow a little bit more than you would think so you're covered but if you're moving up to uh say a multi-tenant three million dollar property uh something like that i mean i've spent twenty five thousand on legal fees because of extremely complex leases and documents that need to be sorted out and that was worth it for that deal. So, But you'll get a quote, of course, from your lawyer and they have to, in all states, pretty much set out absolutely everything and all the costs and what all the searches cost you. And you can get a, a very good indication from that document before you sign. You have to actually sign that with a lawyer and then move on from there so they start the work. Okay, so is there anything else a beginner should look out for when they're trying to purchase and make an offer on a property? I think really the biggest thing is is to make sure they do their homework first and 
not just jump in with a number with no reason. That's one of the things that I see is a big mistake with commercial property buyers that are sort of newbies is that they'll say, they'll think, okay, this property's on, for example, at 550000 Oh, well, I'll just offer 450000 because that sounds all right. That's not the way it works. You know, they should be basing their offer on, you know, recent cap rates or yields in the area, other recent per square metre sales, for example, checking the rents. Now, the more homework they do prior to making that offer gives them more ammunition when they talk to the agent. They can say, well, you know, why are you asking X price for this property when such and such, you know, two streets oversold for this two months ago? Now, it's similar, of course, to residential, but because commercial property deals are, are very much number driven, it's actually a lot easier for you to convince someone to take a lower price if you can back that number up. And it's quite often actually educating the vendor of that property that they're asking too much money for it, and here's why. So um, just very important not to rush, you know, and to get the right, I guess, education about how to do that and then move forward to submitting an offer. But don't be afraid to go in hard. Have ice water in your veins. It's, you know, don't buy emotionally. Just get in there. And if you think it's worth 450000 you might want to go in it and you can back that $450,000 offer up to knowledge. You might want to go in there at 400000 you know, to give yourself some room to move up. Fantastic. Some great advice there. So we'll wrap it up there, James. And next week, we're going to tackle one of the most important aspects of investing, and that is due diligence. If you'd like to learn more about how to use commercial property to fund your early retirement, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash cps now james where else can they contact you through jamesdawsonproperty.com.au but through your link is probably the best andrew fantastic mate james dawson has been my guest today thanks james thanks very much andrew chat soon that brings us to the end of the show please remember to subscribe rate and review Thank you to Adam Lisi from Commercial Collective and James Dawson. Special thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production. <laughs>